Welcome to Word Birds, where you'll hear content conversations directly from the flock. Join Christopher Willis in conversation with content experts and thought leaders as they chat about how to make the most out of your words in business. Here's your host, Chris. Hello, and welcome to Word Birds, birds of a feather conversation between people that care about words. Today on the show, we have Michael Melnitsky. Is a self-professed content fixer and principal technical content developer at a company called Cumulo. Over the course of the next 30 minutes, we're going to learn about building a consolidated content portal from scratch. We're going to hear about how content is a pathway to the beating heart of the business and how usability isn't the same as usefulness when it comes to technical documentation. So let's sit back and get some insight from the flock. Hi, Michael. Welcome to WordBirds. Thank you for having me, Chris. Very excited to talk to you today. I know that in your role as principal technical content developer at Cumulo, you deal with the challenges of creating both content and owning a portal. I'd really be interested in sort of kicking this off by understanding some of the challenges, the unique challenges that face you in your everyday life with that creation of technical documentation. Well, I think as you go along and grow in your career, it becomes a matter of scale. So you grow and the problems also grow in scale. So I think a lot of these challenges have to do with explaining what it is that you're trying to build to the stakeholders and almost selling the idea because the building itself is actually the easy part. I think like in many other companies where I was sort of brought in as the fixer for certain things, the challenge was to first of all, identify what was already there and where that content could go. Because of course, this is like operating on a live body. You have to basically make changes while the company is running, the content is being served, the users are learning about the product. So in Cumulo's case, in specific, it was very important to determine the different moving pieces regarding content. So there was internal content spread out as it usually is throughout Confluence pages and internal engineering documentation handbook, which interestingly enough was written in Docs' code by an enterprising engineer in Hugo looking at the content that was served by the marketing sites that we didn't really have a lot to do with, but we were looking at crossover and what was done similarly, what was done differently. Looking at the content that sat on subdomains and domains and was just sort of waiting to be reworked and waiting to be used because what very often also happens is that someone who creates the content might not always be the maintainer of the content over a long period of time. What I did then was to come up with a content strategy that I had to run by the main stakeholders. These are the VPs, the product owners, the owners for the engineering areas and whatnot, and basically convinced them that there was an easy path forward, even though there were disparate forms of content to create. From then on, it was important to identify a piece of the project that could be built as a proof of concept, which then I implemented by myself, because at the time, I think it was a team of two people. So there was no one to reach out to. For instance, when I was at AWS, there was a doc build system and a doc build team that would basically go on your behalf and put the infrastructure together. But basically, if you're trying to convince someone, you don't have any resources. It's very important to be very mindful of what's out there, what's available, and what you can sort of jigger together for a good show to then build on as you go along. As it happens, I found a Jekyll template that was actually put together by my good friend and former colleague, Tom Johnson from AWS. And I think I chose it specifically over Hugo, over other systems, because it was syntax that anybody could use. And it was very important for a tiny, tiny documentation team 
to have allies in on other teams, on the engineering teams, on product teams, who would be contributing to documentation that we would then be curating. So Jekyll allowed us to do this because with the exception of a couple more complex technical caveats, such as doing transcludes or variable-based leaves of content, most people would just sit down and start writing markdown because it was simple enough. So after about two months, I delivered a uh, proof of concept of the portal where I had to be sort of the front-end developer, the documentarian, the designer of the initial nascent style guide, the writer of the initial batch of content, which was for a piece of the cloud platform and of the hardware platform, one of the super micro platforms, and then sell the idea. Once the stakeholders saw that things are not as complicated as they seem, and the process is actually more amenable to a smaller team and more friendly towards other contributors, it was a lot easier to convince them to let me build out the whole thing, mask it with a corporate domain, and so on and so forth. So I think for me, one of the main challenges has always been to almost translate my vision into something that would make sense to others. I've been taking notes. There's so many things that I want to dig into in what you just said. But let's start with, as you're building out your strategy and you're selling that strategy internally, I mean, you're making a wholesale change here Mm -hmm. and you're consolidating content from around your business into Mm -hmm. this new deliverable. How were you defining and then gaining buy-in on, for instance, the style guideline? What was the process of designing the content that your audience is looking to read? I don't know if it's a snarky answer to this question, but most people don't care about the nuts and bolts as long as something works. And certainly I was lucky because at the time my manager was the VP of engineering, which is very rare to have such a short reporting chain. At the time it was me, then VP of engineering, the wonderful talented Molly Brown, and then the CEO. So having had such a short reporting chain at the time meant that you don't bring problems to people. You don't bring complicated things for them to look at. You bring solutions. Design this. These people have looked at it. They're willing to work on this. So in a way, it almost depends on what level you're operating at. I mean, in most cases, people will not be interested in a nitty gritty of things. And they're just interested in does it work? I want to take a little sidebar to explain how I've arrived at it. And my previous job at sort of being the fixer for things, I was asked to work on an internal documentation portal for Oracle back when I was at OCI, right? And there were a lot of moving pieces there as well because it was Confluence-based. We had to customize this Confluence space to integrate with Jira so people could literally file tickets about the content. We also have to do usability tests on the portal because after a while we realized that people were not finding the right content. So when we were weighing how the content was written, whether or not how the content was useful, it very quickly emerged that if they couldn't find what they were looking for, the style didn't matter at all. So what we ended up doing is literally treating it as a product usability test. We had 36 usability studies. I was assisted by an actual UX expert who would tabulate the results and create the statistical breakdowns for the information. But basically, we would sit them down as any other UX study and say, okay, find us information about how to integrate this service with API Gateway. Sort of go click here, click here. I don't know. I'm lost. And we would start with that, just as we would with a real product. What people often forget, they go straight for the style guide, for the wording, for the structured English, for the structured writing, the simplified technical English. They often forget that documentation is a product in its own, with its own usability built in, with its own challenges in terms of searchability and usefulness. That's another thing that people confuse, usability and usefulness. That's something I learned during that project because 
Usability is how easy is something to use, whereas usefulness, okay, so it's easy to use, but did it actually assist you in terms of launching the service, understanding the product? So there's all these factors. Once I think we nailed those down, it was more or less in my wheelhouse to go with whatever style guide I thought was best because that was less important than is the help helpful. And I have a little anecdote speaking of is the help helpful. That was one of the first textbooks that I looked at when I was doing one of those degrees on the wall as a technical writing degree. And I remember it was a horrifying textbook with a drowning man on the cover, purple in the face. And the title of the book was Is the Help Helpful? Now, I'm not sure about the design choices for the book, but I always think about that bizarre cover when I think about sort of the end goal, because it's easy to get lost in the weeds designing these systems ahead of the fact, because as a matter of fact, they do grow organically as you get to know your user base, as you develop a new persona, as you recruit new documentarians, style guide will change because you realize suddenly, okay, well, maybe there's more than one way to teach developers about passive voice. A lot of typical things that you get lost in the weeds on. But if you nail the usefulness first, these things will almost be secondary to delivering that doc as a product. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. I like the usable versus useful. I think that's really interesting because from a usability standpoint, it can work perfectly. Mm -hmm. It's not useful. It doesn't doesn't help. And I think you're talking about an iterative process of getting closer Mm -hmm. to your end user by being able to measure impact of that content in real time. That's exactly what you should be doing. We'd see a lot of companies focusing on tech docs as a big part of their business. It's the impact, the end use of technical documentation isn't just reading about how to use a product. It's adoption. It's the success of a product launch. There's stories out in the marketplace of errant docs that have confused users so badly that they've blown up product launches. So the importance of being useful and furthering the use of a product builds success in a business. It's not just a thing happening over here because we all have to have tech docs. It's a big part of a successful product launch, a successful product usage, product adoption in the marketplace, and the success in many cases of software business. Agreed. Well, let me respond to a couple of things you said. I mean, it's interesting how obvious that these facts are to us documentarians and how hard of a sell sometimes it is to those who are in charge of our resources, let's say. Yes, I absolutely agree that documentation is a way into the beating heart of the company. The joke I would always make back at AWS, for instance, when asking for something to be explained to me is that if I don't get it, no one else will get it. In fact, I'll make sure of it because that's how I write. I write what I know. Actually, I have another anecdote that might may or may not be funny. I remember just when I joined AWS, I was actually documenting all the messaging services for about four years. So that includes SQS, SNS, simple workflow, step functions, all that jazz. And I think one of the first weeks I walked over to one of the developers and I asked something about maybe dead letter queues or some other feature, right? And to answer my question, he opens up the docs and I said, no, 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 I'm writing the docs. Don't use them as a source of truth. That's the problem. We need to develop kind of a pipeline of what is true and how that truth is reflected. So the docs them in themselves are never necessarily the main source of truth. They're like the filtered source of truth that you want the customers to know to take something away. And it's really telling because right now, for instance, at Cumula, when I write internal release notes and public release notes, even if they're about things that are not necessarily things that we don't want the customers to know, maybe these are things that the customers don't need to know because they get lost in the weeds, they still need to be written very differently because you're controlling the story, the narrative of how the product works to serve you. And I've seen companies err on the side of too much 
or too little or too technical or not technical enough. But there's also the story of those who sell the product not always considering the fact that these personas that people think come in after the sale. So we've sold it. Now we're writing docs to the administrator persona, the developer persona. They come in beforehand, of course, during the investigation process. I'm not sure if the CTO is interested in this per se, but the people that the CTO sends out, how easy is the product to use? Is there an API? Is there a REST API? Are the resources nicely structured? Is there good developer documentation, programming examples? Is there SDK documentation? What language is SDK documentation? And so these are all the things we try to imagine or think about when we think about people approaching the product. And these are all the things that get thought of very often after the fact, or as you mentioned, as a checklist. So we got to have documentation. What kind of documentation do we have? SDK, API, but, but why? Why? And so this is this sort of epic battle that we always have with the powers that be between the understanding that the documentation is an inseparable part of the product, but also that it needs to be delivered in such a way and iterated on such a way, not like we've delivered it and there it lives its own separate life, but certainly turned over every once in a while to create a continuity for selling and showcasing and then working with the product. Yeah, so I do absolutely agree with that. Why are we so afraid of contractions at this company? Hasn't, wasn't, isn't, doesn't, shouldn't. We're not writing academic essays here, people. This employee is disgruntled. They're disgruntled because their company's content creators aren't aligned. They need Acrolinks, the content platform that ensures effortless alignment across every team. Consistency in tone, inclusive language, scannability, and more. No matter what kind of content you're creating, we've got you covered. One of the things from way back at the beginning of this conversation that I keyed in on because of what I do is you talked about as you were consolidating content across the business, looking Mm -hmm. at what, for instance, marketing was doing, how much consistency do you try and build into the way that you communicate with the way that marketing is communicating? Like from a terminology standpoint, a style standpoint, is there any integration there? I'll use a phrase that my dentist friend likes to use. We are not gods. So... In a perfect world, I would come in and I'd say, okay, well, here's the style guide. Let's all get together and agree or disagree and get on with it. The problem is, is that even if we were all friends in the best of worlds, I think we can't forget that these disciplines operate in different spaces. So marketing is written very different from documentation. I mean, it's all about value prop. You know, what is this good for? Very quick understanding. What are the features? What does it get you versus the competitors and whatnot? Whereas docs would never do that. So you can't wander into their house and start telling them to make up their own rules. It's all about earning trust slowly, painstakingly, with the various aspects and areas of the company that would maybe adopt your principles. This is a laborious process. doesn't come to bear right away. And this has to do with ownership on your end, too. For instance, up until recently, we've had this acronym and abbreviation glossary that was just not really owned by anyone. And after a discussion with a few stakeholders, we decided, well, team content is going to come along and we're going to own it. And that allows us to create this source of truth. So next time someone's searching Confluence or hits upon it, they hit upon a resource that's then mean. They don't have to use it, but we've put it there for them. I must admit that when I was younger, I was a lot more defensive back at AWS about marketing coming in, taking content from documentation, plopping it somewhere. Because one of my most frequent assertions was that, okay, well, they're going to do it. Who's going to maintain it? Docs get turned over every time the product changes. Who's going to maintain that static marketing side? So as I've grown slightly older and slightly smarter, I've realized again that this has to be a negotiation that we have to enter into, where rather than telling folks what we want, we need to show 
the dangers, for instance, of stale content, bit rot, all that stuff, in turn offer ways for them to iterate without necessarily owning their content, because that's how you get overloaded as well. So it's a fine tightrope walk that you have to do to ensure that you provide the resources. I'll take another detour again about providing resources and earning trust. One of the biggest challenges with the documentation portal at Cumula was creating the not necessarily the style guide, but the best practices for contributing to Docs' code, because the portal is built with Docs' code principles in mind. Everything gets written in Git, everything gets written in Markdown, and Jekyll, certain stylistic guidelines from a code perspective. And in the beginning, my approach was to simply give the resources to the engineer contributors and say, well, here they are. And that I think even that was a little bit too top-down. So instead, what I started to do a little bit over time is to create Slack channels and saying, well, hey, we're going to treat this like a clinic or kind of an office hour. So if you get stuck, you can come in and ask questions. And maybe I'll send you a link to one of these pages, but maybe we'll workshop through it. So it became kind of a mixture of both things. It's a tightrope walk again, because I can't be always there, always advising people. But the trick is, if you get someone confident enough in this and they're still in that channel, then they start advising others on your behalf. It's almost like growing a network of allies in other organizations. So again, the main takeaway, I think, is about providing resources and then selling the resources, the internal resources, as a tool that makes your life simple, that takes away some of the thinking. And then speaking with one voice becomes a lot less complicated. Because I remember back at SAP, for instance, we had some very complex guidance that was literally called one voice. It was very thorough. But it was very difficult to keep in mind because it was a reference file that you have to open and go through to the right term. And then it was really unclear about who else was using it in this way. It was really difficult to find examples. So while it was very good from a structural perspective, again, it was a little bit less organic from the perspective of earning the writer's trust. So that's my approach to that. Excellent. When I think about the style guidelines, I mean, it's difficult, I think, for the different silos of content in an organization to directly communicate. I almost think it's hierarchical. So Docs is providing up to the broader business. Marketing is providing up to the broader business. Service and support are providing up to the broader business. And then up on top of that, there's this top layer, which is we're all going to spell the name of the company right. Simple Hmm. terminology rule. Working down from there, we inherit from the next set. So we have product names. Obviously, we should all be using the proper product names. You talked about acronyms. Hmm. We should all be using the proper acronyms. But the way that we communicate at the technical documentation level is going to be different than the way that we communicate with support tickets or with marketing content. And I mean, just a fun side conversation from my end, when I got to this company, the first thing that I did was build out a ton of voice because that's what somebody in marketing does when they join a new company. This Mm. is how we're going to talk. And it was common marketing stuff. It was supposed to be witty, wise, not arrogant, not sarcastic, helpful, whatever. How do you turn that into something? But we worked through our product, built it out, built it into Acrolinks and implemented it with our front office team. So marketing had access to it, the BDR team, customer success, and it seemed to work. The audience that we were communicating to enjoyed the tone and had the impact that we expected to have. So being a megalomaniac and wanting to touch everything in the business, I said, who else is making content? Next group I found was support. They're creating support tickets. Fantastic. Here's your filter please go build content this way. You know who doesn't think that my tone of voice is cute? Anybody trying to solve a problem. (laughs) So we learned really quickly that it can't be one thing. It has to be, like you said, designed for the audience and the purpose. It has to be useful. The fact that it might be fun and infinitely usable 
does not solve the problem, then it's not useful to the audience. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways here is that you can do everything technically right. But if it doesn't solve the problem for the user, it doesn't drive adoption. It doesn't build retention around the use of a product. At the end of the day, that's what Docs is designed to do. The impact of your content is top line growth and retention and product success. It's not just, I'm going to teach you how to use the product. Yes, that's what it does. But the business impact is maintaining and gaining new customers, happy customers, successful customers yeah. around the product you sell. I think this has been super interesting. If somebody's listening to this and they want to understand how to take their work in technical documentation to the next level, what's the one thing you would tell somebody entering this space that's going to make them more successful? Well, you mentioned customers. So let's talk about talking to customers. One interesting anecdote I have about customers and users at AWS is that, of course, most people don't know this, but every single page in AWS documentation is keyed to a feedback form. So if you fill out the form, it'll have the URL to the affected page, the form of what went wrong, maybe it's a typo, maybe some incorrect information, and then it'll go somewhere. But most people have no idea where it goes. Where it actually goes is to the backlog of the writer responsible for that documentation. Now, the interesting thing is that has always amused me for those four years at Amazon is that, well, AWS services are very, very tumultuous. So people get frustrated. Maybe they're studying for an exam and they need to know how SQS works because these are very foundational services, basically underwrite the internet these days, e-commerce, all that stuff. Maybe they're under a tight deadline to complete a project that uses a service. So every once in a while, I'd say maybe two out of 10 times, they go in saying all kinds of nasty things because they think they're talking to a machine in terms of feedback. And then you write back to them, good sir, thank you for your feedback. How can we improve this page? And they get all embarrassed and then mix the problem together. Right? But all joking aside, what is excellent about a system like that where every single page is keyed to something? And I haven't seen that in a lot of places before or after Amazon, is that basically that's a direct line to the user, a direct line to the customer. And very rarely do documentarians get that unfiltered. You mentioned customer success. So customer success is a great way of getting the information right. But again, whatever you're getting from customer success is filtered through whatever conversation they're having with the customer. It might be accurate, it might be a little bit influenced by the specific use case. So you either need to interject by taking part in these conversations, or you need to find that sort of more direct thing, directing way of engaging the customer. A lot of the time, this is a pretty typical interview question for documentarians. How do you know that what you did was successful? And typical answer is metrics. Metrics don't tell you the full story. The first thing I did after wiring the documentation portal for Cumulo was connected to Google Analytics, which is great. It tells you a lot of unexpected things. If, for instance, it tells you, oh, somebody Google translated this page into Japanese. Mm, I wonder if we should localize that page into Japanese. Little things like that. But page views don't tell the whole story. The stupid little widgets, was this page useful? Up, thumbs up or thumbs down? That's completely useless. Has been proven mathematically. Does not tell the full story. What tells the full story is this sort of non-algorithmic, very much heuristic feedback from customers. So one of the first things I did when I joined Cumulo was to create a bit of a town hall with the engineers, because at first I wanted a perspective is what was their experience with documentation and just have a long gripe session and just record all the data. Then we had, this was a little bit more difficult to finagle because you don't want to bother customers with too many questionnaires or things to respond to. But I piggybacked onto our UX designers questionnaire. And I think the five or six questions were about docs. So I got a little bit of that data. And I admit one of my initial failures was not to loop in the customer success folks 
early enough. And then after we rectified that, we started talking to them a little bit more. We had a third sort of series of data points. And then by combining them all, we could sort of get the sense of what was going on. And it's not a coincidence that I mentioned usability testing a number of times throughout this conversation. I think it's a very humbling experience to build something and then realize that all of your assumptions are wrong. And this will always happen. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing shameful about that. We as intelligent writers, intelligent designers, UX developers, whoever, documentarians, marketing folks, we always want the best for the user. But as Ambrose Beers wrote, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So you have to moderate that desire with what's actually useful to the customer. And this is where that usability testing comes in. And it can be in a variety of forms. It could be through sort of a long-form feedback. It could be through, and this is a little bit harder to do, through sitting a person down and asking them to accomplish a task. It could be through certain accounting about interactions with customer success or support tickets and all that. But it's all important because it all challenges your assumptions about works or what doesn't. I'll give you some examples from the past. Placement of navigational items. The documentation is perfect. People do have no idea what to click on to get to the perfect documentation. That's a very common issue. Navigational hierarchy. Nesting things too deep, having versus not having breadcrumbs, collapsible menus, how many are too many, and little things like that. One issue that we ran into at uh, Building Developer Central at OCI was I really, really wanted everything to have a learning flow. So you learn about something, what next? You know, so we always try to have something at the bottom of the page where here's what you can learn about next. What was sometimes difficult to determine what was the most germane thing for the person to go on to. So maybe there were two or three different options, and that might have been successful, sometimes confusing at other times. So in other words, putting yourself in the shoes of the user in every possible way and taking that feedback in stride, which is very complicated. You just spent two months building something, and now someone comes to you and basically, frankly, tells them this is shit. Well, you need to sit down and figure out why. And it's also very important to sort out the visceral reactions from the actual actionable feedback. There will be moments where people will be responding very viscerally, but all they meant to say was that, well, I wasn't able to find the document as fast as I could when they said, this is shit. You know? <laughs> so you can't take things literally. And then you almost have to become a student of literary analysis and to dig deeper and say, what did you mean by that? If we change that, we change this one element, would this work for you? So Again, it takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of time. And this is why I would almost say that when you are building out a documentation team, you almost have to have one person almost dedicated to metrics, customer engagement, questionnaires, all that stuff. And in a big enough team, on a team like 10 people, I could see a single person kind of being only dealing with that sort of thing with the reception, with the end result of the documentation. On the smaller team, you can have to share that responsibility with right. everyone else. Fantastic. This has been absolutely enlightening. I mean, my biggest takeaway is, is the whole concept of useful versus usability. If somebody wants to continue this conversation, I assume you have someplace on LinkedIn where people could reach you? Absolutely. I'm happy with folks to connect. I've been mentoring and having chats with folks for a couple of years now, and I'm always happy to answer any questions whatsoever. Awesome. Michael, thanks for hanging out on WordBirds. This has been great. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to join us next time for more insights from people who love words. This podcast was brought to you by Acrolinks. Continue honing your enterprise content by checking out other episodes at acrolinks.com slash wordbirds. 
If you have questions or comments, feel free to get in touch with Chris and his team by sending a message to word.birds at acrolinks.com. That's all for now. See you next time.